Welcome to the Open House podcast site, available at openhousecommunity.com.au. We kick off our Easter Sunday Open House with probably the most critical question about Easter. Is it all true? Did the events we've marked each year from 2,000 years plus actually happen? We'll be looking at the Easter story from a number of perspectives tonight. A little later in the program, two men who are putting out what might seem like an audacious, controversial claim on Easter Sunday that, in their words, the cross is not enough. So first, the Easter events, did they actually historically happen? Of course, these events are well documented in the Bible, but is that our only historical source? Do the claims that the man Jesus died was buried and then was raised again from the dead three days later. Does that all really stack up historically? In fact, if there's any doubt about the resurrection, surely the entire Christian faith would crumble. To provide us with some answers, and I expect some important reflections of his own, I'm so glad to be joined by Dr. Paul Barnett, former Anglican bishop and honorary visiting fellow in ancient history at Macquarie University and a teaching fellow at Regent College in Canada. Paul Barnett, welcome. Good to be here with you, Lee. Great to have you with us. Paul, can we begin with a bit of a look at, for want of a better term, the geopolitical setting of the Easter events? Where are we? What was happening at the time? The setting of the Gospels is quite specific politically. Herod had been king of Israel for quite a long period, but he died in 4 BC. And then his uh, kingdom was split three ways to Judea, to Galilee, and to Gaulonitis. And then, ten years later, uh, the Romans had had enough of Archelaus, who was ruling Judea, and they um, converted his region into a province. Now, that was a momentous event, because that meant for the first time, a part of the Holy Land came under direct Roman jurisdiction. But the Romans didn't do the same thing with Galilee. They left that in the hands of one of Herod's sons, in fact his youngest son, who was only about 17 or 18 when he assumed power. So that meant, therefore, that Jesus lived in two worlds, two political worlds, that is. He lived in the world of Galilee, which was ruled by Herod Antipas, that son of Herod. But whenever he travelled into Judea, he moved into a Roman jurisdiction, which was complicated further by the fact that within Judea was the holy city of Jerusalem, yes. which in turn was ruled over by the high priest. So really it was a quite a complex geopolitical situation that Jesus lived in. The Easter events are of course well documented in the Bible, but what about non-biblical sources? Well, we're very fortunate in that we have um, a number of non-Christian sources uh, from approximately the period just a little bit later than the Gospels. And we're even more fortunate in the fact that they are not neutral, but hostile. So it's a very interesting thing that you have independent, hostile sources. So it's important for them to be hostile. It is, because people rightly question whether it's good enough just to have Christian sources, yes. which are our main sources, but... They are corroborated in all important details by sources that are credible sources but are hostile sources. And the, the two main sources or three main sources really are Josephus, a Jewish man, and Tacitus, 
who was the greatest of the historians uh, for the first century Roman history, and um, Pliny, uh, his companion, who was governor of one of the provinces. These three sources between them really corroborate the, the raw facts that uh, Jesus was active in the Holy Land, that he was executed uh, by Pontius Pilate in the time of the Roman Emperor Tiberius, so that pins the time down to a 10-year period and the location, that unexpectedly the movement that he founded didn't die out but broke out afresh, as, as Tacitus says, and Pliny and Tacitus make it quite clear between them that within a few years it had spread in considerable number to Rome, the centre of the empire. In fact, the Christians were sufficiently numerous that the emperor could blame them for the fire of Rome that destroyed nearly all the city. At the same time, these people are also very, very numerous in the Black Sea province of Bithynia by the turn of the century. So those three sources between them are very, very helpful, They're all the more so because they are not only independent but hostile. Yes, they, they weren't converts. They weren't converts. In fact, they speak about Christianity as a disease a spreading disease that's affecting the whole empire. What didn't they like? What they didn't like above everything else was that um, people who were followers of Jesus put him first, whereas in the Roman Empire you put someone else first, yes. the emperor. And so therefore the, it is a clash between Christ and Caesar. And this was the thing about Christians, that they gave their first allegiance to Christ. Now they prayed for the empire but they didn't pray to the emperor. Yeah. You know the Holy Land very well yourself, and in Jerusalem especially. Can you give us a bit of a virtual tour of where those events were played out, the Easter events? Are we able to confidently still able to see where they were played out? To a degree we are, but there is a difficulty in that subsequent civilizations of Romans and then Ottomans Turkish people have built upon the ancient city of Jerusalem so that in fact the streetscape of Jesus' day is about 10 feet, Just about 3 metres below yeah. the, the, the Jerusalem that you walk on today. But there are various points at which you can get an idea of what the city would have been like. Now, there are two main views as to where the trial of Jesus occurred. The traditional view is it occurred in the Antonia Fortress, and that's where the procession to the Holy Sepulchre, the Stations of the Cross, traditionally begins for Roman Catholic people in particular. I don't think that's the correct location. I think it's much more likely that the trial of Jesus occurred within the, within the courtyard of what had been Herod's great palace, which the Romans commandeered when they took over the province. It's very interesting that Josephus records another trial by a Roman governor some years later, and it, it is very similar to the trial of Jesus. There are, there are accusers, there is the, the Roman judge, there is the accused, there is a verdict, and so on. In that particular case, the accused person was let off. But uh, apart from the outcome of the trial, all the other details are remarkably similar to the Gospels. Now, that trial occurred within the courtyard of Herod's palace. Mm. Now, if that is correct, it is, it is very significant because it probably means that the trial of Jesus 
uh, in that courtyard was not the big public event that I suppose we have traditionally thought. It was more like, in any case, it was very early in the morning. I suspect most people were asleep when the Roman trial was going on. What you have there are the accusers and, I suspect, a renter crowd and Jesus. And the thing is done and dusted before most people in Jerusalem are aware that it's happening. So the question is often asked, how was it that, that the people who cheered Jesus on Palm Sunday called out crucify on Good Friday? It is often said, oh, well, that just shows how fickle the crowds were. I, I don't think that's a true understanding of it at all. And I think it has led to a mischievous understanding in Christian cultures that the Jews were chiefly responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus, whereas the, the better understanding is that it was the Jewish hierarchy in cahoots with the Romans who did and that the rest of the population were basically not involved. On Open House, we're with historian Dr Paul Barnett on this Easter Sunday night. Paul, one of the very significant figures in these events was Pilate. Again, from non-biblical sources, was he a figure of history where we can be certain about that? Judea was a small but very important province, Um, and it was well understood that it was very volatile and that the Jewish people were uh, unpredictable, in terms of how they might respond. Although it was a um, relatively important, though small, province, it's interesting that we know nothing about Pontius Pilate apart from his time there. We don't have any idea of what happened to him beforehand, and we don't know what happened to him afterwards. But for the time that he was associated with Judea, we do in fact have extensive information we have the, the writings of Philo, who was a contemporary, who was a Jewish scholar, who describes Pilate in very bitter terms as a cruel and vindictive and corrupt man. We have a less violent but still negative report about him from uh, Josephus. And we also have a passing reference to him by Tacitus once again. So the three very good historical sources give us quite a lot of information about Pilate's time in in Judea. But then, very excitingly, in 1961, the Italian archaeologists working in Caesarea Maritima, they discovered a, a plaque, a foundation stone, that actually had the name of Pontius Pilate on it. So really, in terms of the literary sources and the archaeological sources, then put alongside the biblical information, we have very, very extensive information. Yes. How are we to view him, do you think, in the position that he was in? Again, there's the great contrast, as with the crowds. He doesn't find any reason to kill Jesus, but in the end he sends him to be crucified. How should we view that and him? I think despite his theoretical power, he was quite vulnerable. The accusation against Jesus was really treason, The Jewish, the high priest's accusation against Jesus was that he was the Christ, the Messiah. But that meant meant, meant nothing to the the Romans. What's a Messiah? What's a Christ? Who knows? They wouldn't know that. So they converted the accusation from the Christ to the King of the Jews. Now, that really was understood. Now, there was only one King of the Jews, and that was the Roman Emperor. He was the King of everything. And so therefore, the um, Jewish high priests are saying, well, unless you do something with this man, you're not the friend of Caesar. 
You see, the word friend meant that you were a that you had seized with your patron. The word friend meant someone who was in a client patron relationship. He owed his job to the emperor, to the Caesar, and therefore, if he didn't act on the impulse of the Jewish leadership, he was no friend of Caesar, not worthy of the job. And so there's a sense that even though Pilate himself was a brute, he was effectively bullied by the high priest into unwillingly, admittedly, but going through with their requirements. Can you give us some history of crucifixion at the time? Uh, it was a very common mode of execution by the Romans and incredibly barbaric. Crucifixion was uh, something that was devised by the uh, Etruscans who um, were powerful in Italy before Rome came to power. But the Romans, as it were, adopted it. And they used it as a, um, a brutal means of executing um, slaves and difficult non-citizens. It wasn't something you did to a Roman citizen. The thing about crucifixion, not only was it brutal for the victim, the slave, the non-citizen, the troublemaker, because you were sort of nailed up and you know struggling to get your, get your breath and you died by asphyxiation over a period of time. But not only was it brutal to the person, it was also humiliating and very public. Yes. Very public. We put people in prisons today and they're out of sight, out of mind in a sense, if they've broken the law. But in, in that day, you, you, you placarded the, the malefactor. Yes. You put him in a position very public and Jesus was crucified near the walls of Jerusalem because the people were able to read the sign that was attached to the cross, the king of the Jews. Um, and that was a very clear message. Do not rise up against Rome or this is the sort of thing that will happen to you. And it took a long time to die, often. Sometimes it did. Sometimes it took days. And um, crucified people were left out there in the open. There was no guards and animals, wild animals, ripped up, ripped at the body parts of the unfortunate person who was writhing in agony there. It was just an unmentionable. In fact, uh, the Roman writer Seneca says that you must never mention crucifixion in polite company. It was such a dreadful, dreadful way of killing people. Paul, in the accounts of Jesus' crucifixion in Matthew, Mark and Luke, we read that when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, three hours. Is there an explanation for what went on there? How do you view that? It sounds like an eclipse, doesn't it? It does, but, but a very serious eclipse. But I don't know that you can get an eclipse at Passover time, which is, I think, a time of full moon. Okay, yes. So Christian writers in the ancient world were greatly taken by uh, this. And uh, there there are slight evidences, historically speaking, that some sort of unexpected darkening occurred at this very time. But it is later and it's, you know, it's not altogether solid. Theologically speaking, I think, in terms of in understanding what was going on, it, it represents the, the separation from the Son of God from his Father, what you might call a rupture in the, in the Godhead. And this is deeply mysterious, and the, the, so you have this darkness and this, this terrible cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me out of the darkness? 
And I think there are hints in the letters of the New Testament that in that death, Christ became a curse for those who break the law of God. And who doesn't? We all do. Mm. And that as the Apostle Paul said, he, he was without sin, but God made him sin for us that we might become the righteous of God in him. So it, it does appear that the tearing of the, the, the temple, the curtain of the temple from, from the top to the bottom, the darkness and the terrible, terrible, terrible cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? From the lips of one who had such an intimate relationship with his God, his Abba, his Father. The critical thing about the Easter story is not just the crucifixion, but, of course, the resurrection of Jesus. For without that, as I said before, the Christian faith probably falls. How certain can we be historically that that was an event that took place? I think the best evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is the the very early testimony to it. Uh, in the writings of the Apostle Paul in the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, where he's not at all attempting to prove the fact of the resurrection, but is simply referring to it to reassure the Corinthians about some other point of Christian behavior. But in that text, uh, which he says he did not himself formulate, but received from others and from a time that was probably within a year or so of the events, He says Christ died for our sins, he was buried, he was raised to life again, and he he appeared, in fact appeared to many hundreds of people alive from the dead. Now that simple outline is essentially followed in the four Gospels where those four events, his, his death, his burial, his resurrection and the appearances are narrated in, in a sort of low-key kind of way to make it quite clear that we actually have the names of people who are witnesses to each of those events. We actually have the names of people and that's written sufficiently close to the events that you can go and check up. Hmm. And one of the names of the people mentioned is in fact a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, a man named Joseph of Arimathea. You can go and talk to him, you know. So these these four events, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the appearances, as it were, undergird both the Gospels, the four Gospels, and this uh, quotation of the Apostle Paul. But then, of course, there is the undeniable reality of the fact of the emergence of early Christianity. It's an undeniable fact that even the non-Christian sources point to. Why do you, why do you have the sudden rise of a movement like this and a spectacular rise a spectacular rise and the fact that the you can you can track the careers of some of the leaders like James and Peter and Paul for the next 20 or 30 years you can see what they're doing you can see that they are changed men <clears throat> who um, are prepared to die for what they believe and so for reasons like this I think it's um, it's it's I think almost impossible from the point of view of historical honesty to reject the resurrection difficult as it might be as an idea but I think historically it's very 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 strong there was a a story about a very eminent um, ancient history professor who who was once asked if an essay was set as to the credibility of the resurrection what would the history professor expect the students to say based on the evidence that there was and he said I would expect the on the evidence that there was for people to acknowledge the historicity of the resurrection. Mm-hmm.
How revealing. Can I ask you one question that's entirely separate from the historical question? Because this, at the end of the day, is Christian faith. It's something not entirely definable in historical terms. But personally, independent of the history, what has that faith meant for you? Uh, For me, personally, it has meant uh, the the access to God in a personal way, Uh, the assurance of being acceptable to God and therefore being at peace with God, the uh, assurance that uh, one's prayers to God are heard and answered, the hope, the certainty that one has that... uh, upon death that one will be in the presence of God and acceptable to him the sublime ethical teachings of Jesus as an inspiring inspiration for a a way of living um, a way of trusting in God a way of not being vengeful towards other people a way of forgiving as one has been forgiven and so on altogether they represent a worldview and a way of life that uh, I I think is just wonderful. Do you have one particular Easter in your life that stood out from the rest? You mentioned the the fact that uh, I've had the privilege of visiting the Holy Land on a number of occasions. One such occasion was a visit to a place that is called Mensa Christi. It's quite close to Capernaum. There's a little church there, there's a little pebbly beach and it is a traditional and quite likely historical location that's recorded and reported in John chapter 21 where um, Jesus appears on the beach and the guys are out there fishing without, without success. Now would you believe it, on the very day we were there about 50 metres from this little pebbly beach was this absolute swarm of fish as it happens, there's hot springs nearby, and when the hot springs empty out into that part of the lake, apparently you do get swarms of fish. I have a photograph of these, of wow. these, these rather large fish breaking breaking the surface, oh. and um, it was just a rather awesome moment that took took us back exactly to the narrative of yes. John chapter twenty one. It was an Easter event. What an amazing story, Paul Barnett. I've uh, been so glad to gain this perspective from you. Thank you so much indeed for uh, joining us on this Easter Sunday. My great pleasure and I hope everybody has a blessed Easter. We hope you enjoyed this Open House podcast. Thanks to Christian Super and Real World Technology Solutions. To hear more from Open House, visit openhousecommunity.com.au.